Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson podcast on justthenews.com. Check out all of the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. In this uncertain age of big tech and media censorship, be sure and pick up my bestseller, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, What's Really Behind the Trends and What You Can Do About It. Today in this podcast, we're going to dig into what the data shows in terms of whether restrictive lockdowns did the job. A lead scientist on a new study says the evidence comparing strategies in the U.S. and other countries is in and it's conclusive. Early on in the coronavirus pandemic, panic sent the U.S. and other societies into lockdown mode. Jay Bhattacharya is a professor of medicine at Stanford University, and he spoke out against lockdowns from the start, really, saying that the science didn't support the strategy. And now with the hard data in, he's one of the researchers on a recent study that found lockdowns didn't help. At the beginning of the pandemic, public health experts were assuming that coronavirus, COVID-19, was far more lethal than it turned out to be. What were the numbers they were talking about before we knew more? And what's it looking like to be now? So in, in uh, I think it was early fe- late February, early March, the World Health Organization released a number that said that uh, the case fatality rate, that is the, the proportion of people that died with, co- with cases of COVID would be 3.4%, you know, three or four out of a, three to four out of a hundred. Uh, in fact, now we know from uh, publications of the Bulletin of the World Health Organization um, that, the, that the, in fact, the infection fatality rate is on the order of 0.2% to 0.3% worldwide, maybe a little bit higher in the US. Um, that is three, two to three out of a thousand. Um, the, the discrepancy is that uh, those early estimates ignored the fact that there were, you know, for every single person who was identified with symptoms of COVID, there were scores of other people that got the infection that never showed up because they had very mild infection. Um, the death rate from COVID is something like 0.2 to 0.3%. Uh, and for old people, it's the survival rate is something like 95% uh, if you're over the age of 70. If you're under the age of 70, it's strikingly, it's 99.95%. 99.95%, five and 10,000 death rate. It's, it's a very, very high survivability if you're under the age of 70. When you talked about the death rate, I, I misunderstood or didn't hear clearly. Did you say the death rate for all people or old people was 0.2%? For all people, somewhere between 0.2 and 0.3. So the survivability for the for this overall, the entire population worldwide, is something on the order of 99.8 to 99.7 percent, somewhere in that range. So to be clear, at one time, Dr. Fauci testified to Congress that COVID was 10 times deadlier than the flu. Is it? It depends on how old you are. If you're uh, older, it is deadlier than the flu. It's not 10 times deadlier than the flu, it is, it is deadlier than the flu. Um, but if you're younger, especially if you're ch- a child, it, the flu is worse. More children died last year of the flu than died of COVID-19. What do you make of his general statement? He didn't talk about age groups that simply said COVID's 10 times deadlier than flu. I mean, I think, uh, I think it was a very misleading statement. I mean, I think even, even in the early days when he testified in Congress, we knew about the age grading. And that age grading is really, really important when you think about policy, because if, um, if it really is equally deadly for everybody, 
and it's 3% death, death rate, then you know, closing schools might be a reasonable thing to do because uh, it's three in a hundred kids that get it would die, it would be terrible. Um, on the other hand, given what we know about it, closing schools is not actually an option. It's not actually a good option. It doesn't actually slow the spread of the disease, it turns out very much. Um, and the risk for not going to school are worse than the risk of, of staying home. I mean, because just to avoid a very, 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 very low risk of death for children. Uh, the, the policy implications were enormous and they created a panic, I think, when Fauci and the World Health Organization um, uh, sort of pushed those numbers out, which, which was, a mis it was a big mistake. In public health, we don't create panics. That is not a good public health practice. Uh, we reassure the public and give them tools. We don't, and he didn't do that. A recent study found that mandatory lockdowns from early in the pandemic didn't seem to make a difference. Can you summarize how they came to that conclusion? Actually, I was, I was one of the authors of that study. Um, so the, the, um, the way that we looked at this is we, we looked at places, uh, in particular South Korea and Sweden, which in the early days of the epidemic did not put in place mandatory business closures and shelter-in-place orders. Uh, throughout the United States uh, and many, many other countries, Spain, uh, France, uh, there was a there were these these sort of very restrictive draconian, which we're all familiar with now. These, these you know stay at home kind of policies um, were put in place, and so the question was, did which countries did better? Where did the disease spread more? Now it's not that that Sweden or South Korea did nothing. They did you know sort of reasonable things. They did that you know they 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 told people don't don't gather in large crowds. Uh, you know, definitely if you're, if you are in a large crowd, wear a mask, wash your hands. Uh, if you're sick, stay at home um, and made all kinds of like good common sense uh, suggestions to, to, uh, to, to try to, pro to, to protect the public. And what happened is there's no difference in the rate of spread in, in the early days of the epidemic. If you compare the group of countries that had less restrictive versus more restrictive uh, orders. The, the, the lockdowns, the very, very restrictive lockdowns did no better than the less restrictive lockdowns, the, the less restrictive policies. You said that would be the case early on. What led you to conclude that? Well, I mean, if you think about what a lockdown actually is, we, I mean, I think in the back of Fauci and other, other public, some, some, some of the public health officials' heads, it's, it's, this, it's this sense that like, everyone can literally stay at their home, separate from one another, and then the disease will stop spreading, right? That's the logic of the lockdown. The problem is lockdowns do not work like that. Only a certain class of people can actually afford to sh shelter in place in that way. Uh, as we, we created a, a class of workers, we call them essential and say, look, you go out into the population, you go get, get exposed. Even if you're high risk, if you're older or have a chronic disease, you're, you're still asked to go out or else you can't feed your family. Um, whereas if you if you're, if you're have a nice house, you, you have good internet connection, even if your school is closed for your kids, you can hire tutors, you can, you can do all kinds of things. We've created this sort of, sort of class division. That's the actual reality of a lockdown. The lockdown protects, it's focused protection for the rich. That's what a lockdown is. And what we've done is we said for everybody else, the lockdown, we pretend like the lockdown will protect them, but it doesn't. The people have to live their life outside, at least most people that aren't, aren't that, that don't, that you sort of can't afford not to. Um, for, uh, so uh, that's what the actual lockdown does. So you, you, you shouldn't have expected it to actually slow the spread, especially shelter in place orders that are only uh, possible for the rich. You and other scientists are part of the Great Barrington Declaration, which is a document that urges governments to lift lockdowns and I guess let the population become naturally immune, but protecting the extremely vulnerable. Is that right? 
Well, I mean, it's not so, so much let it's it's I mean, I think we still I'm still in favor of uh, of good public health advice to slow the spread. I mean, I, of the disease. Uh, but uh, but for it's sort of so there's two aspects of this. First, there's that age gradient we talked about in mortality risk. We have to protect the vulnerable. Uh, in fact, almost all of the failures, 40 percent of deaths in the United States and actually worldwide have been a, bit, a very large fraction of deaths have been in nursing home and care home settings. And so working to protect the vulnerable is really job one. Uh, and we, you know, we, in many ways we fail. In New York, we actually sent our patients uh, with COVID back to, to nursing homes, infected people. New Jersey, same thing, Pennsylvania. Um, uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's, so protecting the vulnerable uh, is, is, is the, sort of the most important thing. People, I mean, there are policies we could have adopted, for instance, protecting uh, people living in uh, work, essential workers who are like 65 or something and have diabetes. We should have given uh, job protection so they didn't have to go to the alternate job arrangements. Uh, instead of just having, you know, like if you're older and you're living alone, instead of just uh, saying, okay, well, we'll give you an hour in a grocery store with other people who might be infected, uh, even though they're older, um, we can offer free deliveries to you, to, to those people, the people who actually would be at risk if they were infected. So that's what, job one, focus protection of the vulnerable. That's, that, that's, the second thing is the lockdown harms have been deadly for the young. We talked about schools already, um, but I can talk about missed, uh, uh, skipped vaccinations. I can talk about, about skipped treatments for, for cancer. Uh, we're gonna see a, a rise in cancer-related mortality. More, more women will die of breast cancer this year uh, as a result of skipped uh, screening that didn't happen last year. Um, and worldwide, 130 million people will, will die of starvation or at risk of death of starvation as a consequence of the lockdowns. Um, so for the, for, the, for the less vulnerable, the idea is lift the lockdowns. Now, again, good public health advice is reasonable. Uh, so people can live their lives as close to normally as they can, um, but restricting them, restricting businesses, uh, ordering shelter in place, it doesn't protect them, it just hurts them. And the disease is much less deadly than the lockdowns for them. So it's, the disease will spread some, but it, it, it'll, it, it, as you can tell, it's spread even with the lockdowns. Other studies claim that millions of lives were saved by the lockdowns. How could there be such different findings within science? Yeah, so if you look at those other studies, most of them are the result of modeling. So these models essentially they, they, they are an unrealistic depiction of how people actually act in the real world. They, they, they essentially say, look, uh, we're gonna reduce the number of interactions and people homogeneously are distributed in the population and they interact randomly with each other. That's not how the real world works. The real world works in very different ways. I mean, some people can segregate, again, I think largely the rich and others are much less able to do so. The models then, because they have built into them the effectiveness of the lockdown, essentially built in as an assumption, then they, at the outside, conclude that uh, well, look, the lockdowns are going to be effective. It's kind of they build in the the, the they build in the conclusion into the assumptions. Um, the only way really to do this is by looking at real world evidence of have the lockdowns worked. And now I think there's something like on the order of thirty some studies that have that, that, that conclude the way we do. It, it just when you look in the world of evidence, it's much harder to find evidence that actually is effective. Now there are things that are effective, like I, th I think sort of um, large large gathering, uh, you know, sort of reducing the number of large gatherings. Uh, good advice about uh, about hand washing, especially in crowded situations. Use masks, uh, N95s, in, in hospital settings, uh, in nursing homes. I mean, I think there are very effective policies available, but they're not the the, the draconian shelter-in-place China-style lockdowns that we've seen. Back with more from Stanford Professor of Medicine Jay Bhattacharya after a short break. 
We are back with Stanford Professor of Medicine Jay Bhattacharya, who has cut against the grain on some important public policies about coronavirus and says thousands of scientists feel the same way he does, but have been afraid to speak out. Regarding this pandemic, are you concerned about what happens to scientists today or science if for whatever reason they're contrary to what other scientists or the government or the media or politicians want them to say? Yeah, I think I, I'm really concerned about that. I think the the performance, I mean, in some ways the science has performed very well. The, the development of the vaccine is, is, is like a moonshot, but the modern miracle. Um, but for uh, in many other ways, science has been debased. Uh, there's been censorship of people who don't agree with the, with the government or with the with public health authorities, accusations, uh, false accusations uh, of, of conflicts of interest. Um, that's calls for censorship within science. Uh, every anytime someone expresses a view uh, that, that's contrary to what uh, Dr. Fauci says, they're accused of saying dangerous things. I mean, I think, um, and this is scientists, like prominent good scientists, it's had a very chilling effect on science. When we put out the Great Barrington Declaration, uh, it's striking. I've received now thousands of emails. Uh, there is an enormous number of scientists, epidemiologists, and other people who don't agree with the with the orthodoxy of the policy, the lockdown orthodoxy. Uh, but we're very uncomfortable saying so for fear of being smeared. Um, I think science is going to have to learn uh, to, to address that uh, this sort of groupthink mentality and this this sort of this mentality that that attacks uh, uh, outside. Because science can't proceed, science can't work unless there is the possibility of open discussion about fear of reprisal. And then the topic that we talked about last night. Um, let me just start it this way. Is there any scientific rationale for recommending that people who've had coronavirus get the coronavirus vaccine? No, there's not. If you've had previous infection, you are immune. Uh, and, and you're, you're well, of the vast, vast majority of people. There's excellent scientific evidence at this point, it published in, in prominent places, careful immunological work, and also empirical work. There's been very relatively few, given that the, there's, um, uh, I mean, the, you know, hundreds of millions of people are infected worldwide uh, and only a handful of reinfections to date, the immunity lasts for a good long time. It was what the, what the, the uh, at, least, at least a year uh, and, and, and probably longer for, for the vast, vast majority of people infected. So getting a vaccine, if you're already infected, provides absolutely no additional protection. What about if you haven't cleared the infection, but you currently have either a positive test for coronavirus or you're sick with coronavirus? What would the vaccine do for that? Probably nothing, right? So the way the vaccine works is it presents to your cells a, a, a clip of the virus, a, a, not the actual virus itself, but just a little bit of the virus. Um, and that causes your cells to to get it, uh, to start producing proteins that your immune system reacts to that mimic what you would do if you had a viral infection. Well, you're in the situation you just described, the person already had a viral infection. There's, no, there's not gonna have an additional, there's not gonna be an additional benefit to that person because you already have the antibodies to those, those viral clips that the, the vaccine would have provided you. Um, and that's, this is borne out by the way in the trials. Uh, the trials show very uh, no additional benefit at all to people who were previously infected. Public health officials, however, are recommending that people who've had coronavirus go ahead and get the vaccine. What do you think is behind that and what's the result? I don't know what's behind it. I mean, it's not good science, it's not good medicine. 
because um, you know, for the person that's getting the the vaccine um, that have already had the infection, they're just, uh, I mean, it's it's just on net not beneficial. There's some some side effects in the vaccine. You know, not not not, not I mean, it's not common to have very very severe ones, um, but uh, but on net, you want the vaccine to be beneficial for the people that get it. And it is for people that haven't had it before, but it's not for the people that have. Um, so I don't understand the, the, the reasoning. The, the best justification I've seen is that it's like logistically difficult to ask people if they've got had previous infection, but how is that difficult? If you had COVID, you pretty much are likely to know uh, if you were diagnosed with COVID, you could just ask before you did it. Or if you, or you can also require a very cheap antibody test before you did it, uh, before you, before you um, give the vaccine. None, none of this is logistically complicated, I, don't, I wouldn't think, especially just the asking. One factor that comes into play as well is the notion that we're told in places there are vaccine shortages, there aren't enough vaccines to give to people who want it when it comes to COVID-19 vaccines. How does that factor into what we're talking about? Oh, it's incredibly important, Cheryl. So, if you think about about the shortages, and there are, they're real. There's still, uh, you know, I think uh, hundreds of millions of people in the United States and worldwide that haven't had the vaccine. Uh, it, it's um, it is it's absolutely immoral not to prioritize people who would benefit the most from it. And by and, and many states we haven't done this. Uh, like, but but like just to, coming back to our previous discussion, we could preserve the doses for the people who have had, have not had the infection because they'll benefit from it and, and, and delay at least the ones who have had it because they're not likely to benefit from it. Um, that would save lives, lots and lots of lives, right? A very simple thing. I don't understand how the, the public health authorities can, can argue or say that, that, they, that we shouldn't be checking for that um, when the science so strongly says it should. The other thing is like prioritizing older people. Like I think um, Florida, I think is, looking at the numbers, I think has, has 65% of doses have gone to people who are over 60, 65, which is the right thing to do because they're the ones who are at highest risk. On the other hand, many states, uh, Massachusetts, for, for instance, uh, have, it's only 15% or 18%, somewhere in 15, 20% are over the age of 65. We should be prioritizing the vaccines given that there is a shortage. It's, it's going to get better over time, but for now, there's a shortage. We should prioritize the people that are at highest risk from mortality from it. Um, and that includes people over 65, and we should exclude anyone who's had previous infection and survived. CDC has had a scientific policy guidance on its website that claims the coronavirus vaccine has proven equally safe and effective in all age groups, races, and so on, and including for those who previously had a coronavirus infection, COVID-19. Is that your understanding? Is that true? That, that second part is not true. Uh, I mean, it is, it is not equally effective for people who have and have not had previous infection. People who have had previous infection, the vaccine, the evidence, the trial evidence shows that it is not effective in preventing additional, additionally preventing the disease. Why would it be? You're already immune. So it doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, you just have to like, you think about the science and look at the science. Um, if the CDC has on its, on its site then it is doing the public a disservice. Uh, both the people that get vaccinated that don't really need it because they've been previously infected and also the people who should be prioritized the vaccine but aren't getting it because of shortages. That was Stanford Professor of Medicine, Jay Bhattacharya. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out justthenews.com and don't forget to subscribe to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast as well as my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours and all the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. Don't forget to read the reviews on Amazon 
from my new bestseller, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, I think looking at the reviews might help convince you that there's information here that you need. That's Slanted. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. Thank you.